0: Welcome back to Psych your Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. And always, I'm so happy that you're here listening to me. I always say that I never thought that this would last this long, that maybe a handful of my family members would listen. So I'm super happy and excited when I see that people from all over the world are still with me, especially since I took that little bit of a break. But I'm back uh, with my full attention um, you can reach me at @geekflossy Geek Flossie on Twitter and Instagram. The Patreon is back up. We've changed the tiers for the Patreon. So at $5, you will get access to uh, uh, pictures, little known facts about the cases that are up. Also, you're going to get access, early access to episodes before they're on the normal sites such as Spotify, Um Stitcher, uh, uh, iTunes, any place that you're listening to me. If you uh, subscribe to the Patreon, you'll be able to get uh, early access to at least three episodes at a time. Um, And then if you do the $25 tier, on top of getting early access and pictures and little known facts that aren't included in the podcast. You're also gonna get a psychocrime Crime t-shirt. Yes, that merchandise is available, as well as the ability to request a crime. Now, I especially wanna hear from people that are in other countries. Um, I've had trouble trying to find crimes in certain countries, so I wanted to open this up as a chance for people to request that I look into certain things um especially if it's a little known crime local and especially if it's a very stupid crime i'm going to um as i said before go to once a month and the lives i've opened up a youtube channel just so you can see my smiling face um and be able to uh, access it even if you're not on the original live but um the stupider the better um we want to see maybe if someplace in the united states is competition for florida as far as florida man So uh, with that being said, um, let's get into this week's uh, crime. This is actually the first of a two-part series about serial killers who then later recanted. And people who were labeled serial killers admitted to multiple crimes under dubious circumstances and then recanted. And I wanted to do two separate ones because I wanted to show the stark difference in how these type of situations where false convictions are concerned are handled in different countries. So we will start with Stuart Bergeval resided in a psychiatric hospital for the criminally insane three hours drive north of Stockholm. In order to visit you must enter through a succession of automatically locking doors and walk through an airport style security gate. You must leave your mobile phone in specially provided lockers and hand over your passport or ID in return for an ID bag and panic alarm. Okay, wow, they don't even have, <laughs> i worked some inpatient hospitals with very violent people, we never had panic alarms. So, <laughs> he was a patient at Stator Hospital from 1991 to 2013. Until relatively recently, Sturb Bershwal was Sweden's most notorious serial killer. He had confessed to more than 30 murders and had been convicted of eight. He called himself Thomas Quick. Assuming this sinister alter ego, he claimed during a succession of therapy sessions at Saitor Hospital over the course of years that he had maimed, raped, and eaten the remains of his victims the youngest of whom was supposedly a nine-year-old girl whose body was never found. During the 90s, Quick confessed to one unsolved murder after another, becoming in the words of the father of one of his victims, a ghost who ran through Scandinavia killing more than 30 people. The sadistic murderer was a media sensation, and his bespectacled face stared out from the front pages and telephone screens. The newspapers called him a cannibal, and he very quickly became known as Sweden's own Hannibal Lecter. During the 90s, Thomas Quick confessed over and over and over again. But in 2001, he stopped cooperating with the police. He withdrew from public view and changed back to his original birth name. In 2008, Hans Rostam, one of Sweden's most respected documentary makers, became intrigued. He visited the former Thomas Quick now known as Stor Burshwal at Saitar Hospital. He went through fifty thousand pages of court documents, therapy notes, and police interrogations, and came to the startling conclusion that there was not actually a single shred of technical evidence for any of Burshwal's convictions. There was no DNA, no murder weapon, no eyewitnesses, nothing apart from the fact that he confessed, many of which has been many of which were obtained under the influence of narcotic strength drugs. Confronted with Rostam's discoveries, Barshaw admitted the unthinkable, that he had made up the whole story. Rostam figured out in painstaking detail the way in which the deeply troubled Quick was able to gain key information surrounding each case from psychiatrists, police officers, and lawyers, before piecing together and very confused and oftentimes run-on testimonies into coherent narratives that would stand up in court. In a country that's become synonymous with fictional detectives like Henning Mankel and Wallander, Wallander I love, I watch both versions of the show, both the Swedish and the British version, so yes, and I've recently started subscribing to Walter Presents so I can see much more Scandinavian crime, shows because they're very dark war themed shows. I literally just watched an Icelandic show where people voted to have a medium come speak to the elves in the uh on the cliffs. So yes, it's very different than American shows. Uh Bergewald created a public outcry and a judicial scandal the likes of Sweden had never seen. He went on to be acquitted of the murder. According to most experts, the strange case of the serial killer who never was raises very, very serious questions about the entirety of the legal system. Why would a man confess to such sadistic and violent crimes if he was innocent? In the visitor room at Sather, Barshwal tried to explain. It was about belonging, an all too familiar sentiment, one made by Henry Lee Lucas in Texas during the 80s, which we will talk about in the second episode. To this series. I was a very lonely person when it all started. I was in a place with violent criminals, and I noticed that the worse or more violent or serious the crime, the more interest people got from the psychiatric personnel. I also wanted to belong to that group to be an interesting person in this place. Bourgeois had always wanted to fit in. He was a teenage misfit. He grew up in a small town in rural Sweden, one of seven siblings raised according to strict Pentecostal beliefs. He describes himself as a creative and ambitious child, interested in theater and writing. At 14, he realized he was gay. Ashamed by his sexuality, he hid it from his deeply religious parents. He started experimenting with drugs, amphetamines were his favorite, and at the age of 19, was accused of molesting adolescent boys. Later, he tried to stab a former lover, In 1990, he robbed a local bank dressed as Santa Claus, I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh, to feed his addiction. The clerk recognized him. He was incarcerated at Slater Hospital for psychiatric treatment. Not a stable individual then, but definitely not a serial killer, at least not yet. As a young man, Bourgeois had always hankered after being taken seriously and treated as an intellectual. For a while, he wanted to be a doctor and he had read up on psychoanalysis. In Saitar, he began to realize he could use this knowledge to get the attention and acceptance that he craved so badly. What would you say, he asked his therapist one day in 92, if I had done something really bad. Bargewell stated that this created a reaction, an instant interest. He went on to say, maybe I murdered someone. And once I said that, there was just no going back. The first murder Thomas Quick confessed to was that of John Johan Asplund, Asplund excuse me. I'm trying. <laughs> the victim of one of the greatest criminal mysteries in Swedish history. Johan was an 11-year-old boy who went to school one day in November 1980 and disappeared. His body has never been found. During a series of therapy sessions and later in police interviews, as quick, he stated he had picked up Johan up, picked Johan up outside of school and lured him into his car before taking him to a wooded area and assaulting him sexually. Quick claimed he had panicked and then strangled the boy, subsequently burying his dismembered body parts so no one would be able to find them. But despite forensic technicians searching the locations that he described, no remains were ever found. In fact, it took nine years for prosecutors to put together a case against him. He was finally convicted of Johan's murder in 2001. Now, this is really interesting because in the United States, it's extremely difficult to uh, convict someone without a body to the extent that many prosecutors will not even do it. They won't go there if there's no body and they have nothing but like hearsay or like what someone says, they absolutely won't even try the case. Um, It's why there's been a couple different people who were convicted in the absence of a body. And then when the body came, when they actually found the body, their theory of the crime was disputed so it opens up a possibility for appeal when the body is found if the crime didn't happen the way that you convicted the person over by this time quick had already been found guilty of seven other killings yeah oddly for a serial killer there was no obvious modus operandi no mo quick killed children and adults he raped men and women and he used an array of weapons and committed murders in various parts of sweden and norway in 96 he confessed to the murder of a nine-year-old therese Johannesson in norway eight years earlier quick initially said the girl was blonde and lived in a small rural village despite the fact that she had brown hair and lived in a tower block in an urban area now this is the thing about serial killers while over time they may hone their mo they may you know evolve to make it better or adapt they have a definite mo there is a compulsion there they follow a pattern and so the idea that there is a serial killer who supposedly killed 30 people throughout various countries in scandinavia and he had no set mo he had no victim type it makes no sense especially when supposedly he committed sexual assaults people who are repeat sex offenders serial sex offenders they have a type a victim type they usually are always adults are always children and as messed up as this sounds especially when we're talking about um child predators and i've discussed this when we talked about the satanic panic and falsely convicting someone of uh, child molestation people have a set victim type if they go after you know pre-adolescent children it'll be pre-adolescent girls and it'll always be the same way they're not going to cross over from pre-adolescent to teens to adults when it comes to sexuality and sexual assaults there's a preference there's a type so that makes this highly unlikely that he sexually assaulted boys girls and adults that's not the way that we now know not the way the mo of people who are um serial rapists or who have sex tinged murders they have a victim type and it stays the same Um, he got nothing right. Birchwall's lawyer, Thomas Olison stated, he described a totally different situation in every aspect, but instead of accepting that they went on with 15 new interviews, 15. That's a lot. Most interviews last an hour or more. Some of them can last all day. So to do that 15 more times after he got every single thing, right? That is a massive, every single thing wrong. Excuse me. That's a huge red flag. Olsen, who was brought in to represent Stuart Bourgeois after he retracted all of his confessions, has a reputation for taking on the most difficult of cases. After confessing to the murder of Therese Johansen, Quick was driven to Norway. The TV cameras followed his every move. He was rapidly becoming one of the most famous men in Scandinavia and revealed and reveled in the attention. When Quick claimed he had thrown Therese's body parts in a nearby lake, the Norwegian authorities spent seven weeks draining it. They found nothing. When a 0.5 millimeter bone fragment was discovered in an adjacently wooded area, it later turned out to be a charred piece of wood. But despite that, he was still convicted. That's insane. The amount of money and time that goes into draining a lake upon anything is is absolutely astronomical like cost-wise so for them to do that and have it be nothing there yeah i could see how they might be salty even more curiously he appeared to have a cast iron alibi for some of his crimes Although he confessed to killing a teenage boy in 1964 at the age of 14, it turned out that several witnesses can remember him at Holy Communion with his twin sister 250 miles away. (laughs) In fact, there was a photograph showing him there. When he claimed responsibility for the killing of a 23-year-old woman in Norway in 85, he said he had had sex with her despite being gay. The police had found traces of sperm, but subsequent DNA analysis ruled out the possibility that it belonged to Thomas Quick or Bershaw. Thomas Quick is what I will refer to him when I'm talking about the supposed crimes. And yet the courts once again found him guilty beyond all reasonable doubt. How is that possible? He's already said he's gay, even though he admits to sexually assaulting and the DNA ruled out that it's not him. So how is he guilty beyond all reasonable doubt if the DNA clearly shows it's not him? Still today, there are those who robustly defend the police investigations, including Supreme Court judge Joran Lamberts, who conducted a week-long review of the quick case in 2006 in his previous role as attorney general and found it all to be above board. There's no DNA, nor fingerprints, and the evidence is not as strong as it could be, says Lambertz. When we met and talked about the case, what there is is everything that Quick said back that sort of fits in. He gave a lot of facts about two murders in particular, Johannesson and Zelmanitz, that fit so well with what actually happened and what kind of kids they were but according to burshaw a lot of the information was already public knowledge early in his confessional spree he still had regular leaves of absence from the hospital what you think he's a you think he's a serial killer and you're letting him leave and roam the country like cool go about your life we we totally trust you to come back and not murder anybody while you're out there dude like that's just ridiculous i'd go to the royal library in stockholm on day release and read up on all the old cases in the microfishes. For those of you too young to know what that is, you've probably seen it in movies and where people take rolls of photos, like miniature rolls of photos of the actual newspaper clippings and newspaper articles. You would go to the library, you would say the date of the newspaper or like the time frame and they'd give you tiny little rolls and you would put them in this machine and it would blow it up. So it's like looking on a computer screen. And that was how libraries used to store back issues of uh, newspapers uh, back in the day before everything went digital. Uh, Bourgeois noted down all of the telling details in the reports, the positioning of the body, the specifics of the landscape, the victim's clothes. And then he would magically reveal these in therapy as he took on his Thomas Quick persona. His therapist, who saw him for a minimum of three 90-minute sessions each week, would praise him for his bravery in digging deep into his remembered past. Okay, those of you who know much about the psychiatry field, know that in the 90s, a much used technique was completely debunked and it was called found memories, where therapists would encourage people to talk about stuff. And the reality was saying that they were helping them find their repressed memories. The truth was what they were doing was planting memories in people's heads. And it actually caused many people to need years more of therapy to really find out who they were and what happened in their past. And in some cases, people actually had psychotic breaks because what they were being spoon fed by the therapist did not match what they actually remembered or had in their heads. And that's what caused them to have a break because they're consciously believing what the therapist is telling them, but their subconscious is telling them this is not what happened. This is not real. And that's where the disconnect happens. So the therapist actually congratulating him and praising him for digging deep and to his remembered past sounds a lot to me like they were doing this found memory therapy or like she was trying to do a version of it and that's super dangerous the police would be thrilled at the emergence of a credible suspect for previously unsolved crimes on two occasions quick was flown by private jet to take part in reconstructions at murder sites wow that is so inflammatory and so bad because you're giving him total access to everything he should not have access or know anything about. All the time, Quake was basking in the glory like he was a proud child. I didn't need to do much to tell them these stories, he said. Usually, a single newspaper article would be enough. The rest of the information always came during the interrogations from the police, the therapists, or other different people on the investigation team. I knew I just had to listen to pay attention. In all of his therapy sessions, and the ensuing police reconstructions, Birchwald was heavily drugged on benzodiazepines. Medical records show he was being given tablets every couple of hours, wow, often up to 20 milligrams of diazepam, enough to knock someone out. I worked in inpatient substance abuse as a substance abuse counselor. And benzos were used many times when people were coming out of an opioid addiction um, we would treat things like um their anxiety and things like that but that dosage that often is insane like usually for people who had benzos for anxiety they would have it like twice a day tops and never that much so yeah that's insane like i'm look used to seeing like two milligrams maybe five milligrams in a pop definitely not 20 milligrams that is like what you give to someone to knock them out at night that is insane a high dosage given to those with bad impulse control can lead to a loss of inhibitions and would explain why he was able to invent such a grotesque series of events the cannibalism the rapes and the murders at the time he remembers being fascinated by depictions of fictional serial killers he was able to borrow oh my god they let him borrow a copy of american psycho from the hospital library He is saying he's a serial killer, and they let him check out a book about a person who is a serial killer. Not a good look, guys. The drugs were the most important. I had free access to them and relied on them to get me pumped up so I could tell these stories that I was making up. What effect did the drugs actually have? A lot happened inside of me. I'd get high, I'd get a kick, and then I'd have all kinds of fantasies. My imagination would run wild. In one sense, they gave me creativity. It was like a vicious cycle. The more I told, the more attention I got from the therapist and the police and the memory experts. And that meant I also got more drugs. That's ridiculous. So he took the drugs to be able to be able to lie and make up these stories. But then the more attention he got, the more access to drugs he got, and then yeah it's a vicious cycle of addiction is what it is there is a clique of people around him variously described by those i talked to as being almost like in a cult like they were a traveling circus or religious sect that did not welcome anyone who had a dissenting opinion the same police officer therapist therapist prosecuting and defense lawyer dealt with each confession through the years even the same sniffer dog was used to go through each murder site. That's really unusual. Um, as far as therapist, um, a prosecutor, and defense attorney, that's not too unusual um, to have, because a big case would be designed, at least in the United States. I don't know how Sweden works, but in that respect, but I know in the United States, it's not unusual to have the same prosecutor and defense lawyer. Uh, he should maintain the same therapist. Like that's normal, but police officer, absolutely not like it that makes no sense like if they had one police officer like but it shouldn't be the exact same one to show up at every single scene that kind of there should be more than one varied police officers and the dog absolutely not that's super weird during the course of the investigation quick mentioned at least 24 different places in sweden and norway where he had committed murders handled dead bodies or left body parts zampo marked for human remains 45 times at 24 locations not a single trace of blood or body parts was ever found the dog is just as bad as the rest of them now let me explain something in the united states we do have an issue with sniffer dogs our issue is with drug dogs many times people will use sniffer dogs as a justification to search people's vehicles when they pull them over because they won't let them search they won't let them in their car and they don't have probable cause, the issue is the dogs bark on a lot of different things. It's not necessarily just drugs. It's not necessarily just the human smell. So a lot of times they bring drug dogs and they bark and there's a lot of different things that can cause the smell. So say that you are in a state where it's legal to smoke marijuana and somebody who smoked marijuana is in your car, the dog could bark because the dogs have not been retrained for them not to bark at marijuana. The dog could bark because your your car smells like marijuana. Well, if you're in a state where it's legal, technically, because the dog can't say, hey, I smell cocaine, or hey, I smell marijuana, they're getting probable cause, but if the probable cause is the smell of marijuana, eh, it, you know, so sniffer dogs are an issue. A lot of people believe that some of the dogs are trained to bark, period and that the bark giving them a justifiable cause to, you know, search. Um, But it is a very, very contentious issue in the United States, the use of sniffer dogs because there have been incidents like this where they're using body sniffing dogs and they have barked and it's not human remains or what they're smelling is not like a cadaver. So there is an issue with the use of dogs in the United States as well. The theory is this group of people propagated that the patient had repressed traumatic memories, which then resurfaced in the form of dream sequences that could often be littered with inconsistencies. Yeah, NASA. no. no. <laughs> it was only through repeated therapy sessions with trusted confidants and the administration of calming drugs that the real narrative could emerge. For Jenny Kutum, this was one of the most scandalous elements of the whole affair. He was a mental patient in a mental hospital in Scyther. He was the only one who did not have a job. The other people were the ones who were meant to be saying, no, we don't believe you, this doesn't make sense. In that way, you cannot blame Storberzhoel because a lot of people around him should have just said no. At the same time, he's also to blame because he hurt a lot of people by lying and telling these stories. Not for many reasons, says Born Absalon, father of the first alleged victim who works for a mental health charity. In almost all cases where the child is a victim, it is someone who was a close relative to the child who was the perpetrator. Thomas Quick was not known to them. In fact, the Absalons were convinced they knew who did it an ex-partner of Anna Clara who wanted to seek revenge after the breakup of their relationship. There was enough circumstantial evidence against the suspect for the Asplans to pursue a private prosecution. So for those of you who are not aware, Sweden, it's a lot like our American civil court where you pursue a private prosecution. The ex-partner was sentenced to two years in Prison for kidnapping but freed on an appeal later that year so they had enough circumstantial evidence to actually convict him but he had that overturned on an appeal Sean aslan however remains convinced of this man not quick's guilt it made me angry when thomas quick confessed because from that point i realized the whole case was going to be closed against the real perpetrator it then took seven long years for quick to frame a coherent sequence of events that just confirmed the couple's suspicions. For every sober person in this country, it must have been obvious that this guy was not trustworthy. Wow, when you have the parents of one of are saying, yo, this dude did not do it. If you are sober, it's clear that he's full of crap. That's huge. During the investigation, Aslan believes it was obvious that Quick was getting his information from the police. We found out everything we would tell them would come out just a few weeks later in his therapy session. As an example, he points to the fact that Johan had a distinguishing birthmark on his right buttock that only his parents knew about. In early interviews, Quick claimed only that Johan had vague marks or maybe a couple scars on his stomach, maybe from a surgery. The police asked the Aslans if Johan had any scars. For a while, they refused to be specific because of their suspicion that the information would find its way back to Quick. Then, they threatened to take my wife to court for protecting a murderer, Aslan recalls. So, she drew a picture of the birthmark. Shortly afterwards, Quick remembered the mark in therapy. Indeed, for every murder he confessed to, Quick was subjected to an average of 10 to 15 police interviews. For our victim's families, the prolonged nature of each investigation was very distressing. Aslan, whose life had already been shattered once by his son's disappearance, was forced yet again to dredge up all of those painful memories and then listen to Quick's horrific testimony in court. Quick uh, claimed that he ate Johan's fingers and that he cut off the child's head and kicked it like a football. Why? Why? This is why you don't get confessions from people on drugs, kids. Like, no. Did he know he was lying? This is the most difficult part to explain. There was an awareness that he had lied. At the same time, I was living in a role as Thomas Quick. And in my role, I could forget the awareness that I wasn't actually Thomas Quick. During the Thomas Quick years, I tried to hang myself. I banged my head against the wall until it bled. In the nights, I would wake up screaming, no. In the middle of the nights, there was an awareness that it was all make believe. And when I woke up, I got a dose of Benzos, and then I could forget that and push that aside. In 2001, a new clinical director at Scyther reviewed Quick's medical records. He was shocked to discover the dosage and Quick's supply of drugs quickly dwindled. Once he stopped taking them, he stopped confessing. Oh, Surprise, surprise, like I said, do drugs and confess to murders, kids instead he announced to journalists that he would no longer cooperate with the police and withdrew from public view he then kept his silence for seven years tall anas rostam tracked him down Anas was a very intense person with an ability to really listen and also get others to share says barshaw for the first time showing some small hint of emotion i remember the third time we met he had seen the videotapes of the police reconstructions and he said, I can see you're high on drugs. It was the first time I can remember thinking, something's going to help I felt like, yes, something's gonna change and I was ready to confess. It was liberating to finally tell the truth and to know I didn't have anything to fear since it was the truth. Between 1994 and 2001, Quick had been convicted of eight murders at six different district courts. Charles Zelmanthovitz in 1976. He was sentenced for that in 1994 with no forensic evidence except for his confession. That sentence was quashed, meaning it was thrown out in July of 2013. Johan Aspland, 1980, sentenced in 2001. Nobody, no forensics, just a confession. Sentence was quashed in March of 2012. The Steghaus couple 1984. Sentenced in 1996, no forensics, but Quick gave information regarding the facts that had never been disclosed to the public. His confessions were later questioned, as Quick seemed to have been privy to all the information before the trial. A retrial was granted, but the sentence was quashed in May of 2013. Yanon Levy, a tourist from Israel in 1988, He was sentenced in 1997, no forensic evidence, but statements included in Quick's testimony, such as his incorrect guesses at the murder weapon in police interviews. Quick guessed it was an ax, a spade and a car jack before getting to the right answer, a wooden club. The incorrect guesses were never mentioned in court and the sentence was quashed in September, 2010. Teres Johannesson in 1988, Sentenced in 1998. Bone fragments presented as forensic evidence turned out not to be bone fragments. Sentence quashed March 2011. Trini Johnson 1981. Sentenced in 2000. No forensic evidence. Sentence quashed September of 2012. Gray Storvik 1985. No forensic evidence, just a confession. The semen found in the victim did not match Quick. Sentence quashed September 2012. In Sweden, a defendant always gains access to the full police investigation prior to trial. Quick's lawyer, uh, Klaus Bergström, had been criticized for failing to protect his mentally disturbed client's objective interests in being judged not guilty on July 30th quick uh, July 30th 2013 quick was acquitted of the last of the eight murder conviction Sturburshaw has been released from Scyther's Institution for the Criminally Insane and m- most of the treatment plan has been made confidential which it should however from uncensored portions that did get released to the press it is apparent that Burshawall will not has not taken medication for several years and is assessed to not need any so that was the case of thomas quick aka star sports uh, that's the case that happened in sweden as you can see they very swiftly once um it became apparent that he had been on a lot of drugs that you know things were not adding up and there was an outcry sweden very quickly took action and they just quashed every single conviction there wasn't a fight there wasn't an argument they just took it back to court went over the case and it didn't add up and they quashed the conviction Unfortunately, in the second part of the series, we will look at Henry Lee Lucas, an American who had an eerily similar experience, except he actually confessed to hundreds of murders all over the entirety of the United States. And his road to redemption was not quite as easy as Thomas Quicks. So Join us next time when we look on to part two in Henry Lee Lucas. And in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.